Welcome to Adventures in Business. This is a show where we have thought-provoking conversations with founders, CEOs, and business leaders of various industries to learn about their stumps, falls, trials, tribulations, and successes on how they manage the current business environment. Join our hosts, Mandy Graziano and Amani Roberts, as we chat with our next guest. All right, happy 2023. We're back from our vacations, our holiday celebrations. Mandy, good to see you. How was your holiday season? Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Amani, and everybody, happy New Year. Uh, I'm awesome. I took three weeks off work. I unplugged. I did not look at one email. Well, I lied. I looked at a couple emails, but um, I have not done that in 12 years. Normally, my vacations are all about like I work from five to nine in the morning. Then we start the vacation and then I check in at night. But I totally unplugged and we went to Italy and we saw it all and it was rainy and cold and awesome. And um, I can't I can't believe I did it. So Yes. We live to tell the story. Our work can, can go on. It can go on yes. without us. And the, everything was fine. Yeah. What about yeah, you? I, what I just kind of kept it low key, hung out with friends and family for like the Christmas holiday family and then friends for New Year's Eve and just kept it kind of chill. So I did not, I was not venturing overseas and having all sorts of great cuisine and all that. So maybe next, you know, next holiday season for me. Next year. I do it in the summer. <laughs> do it next week. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's an idea, too, for sure, for sure. <laughs> All right, so we're here. We have a lovely guest with us. I'm excited to introduce you to him. And really what I want to do is we bring him on stage um, is to really let him introduce himself. Now, I first met Maurice Cherry when we both were working for Angel Bitten's Black Web 2.0 site back, oh, that's like 10, 10 years ago, 10, 11 years ago. Yeah, and like 15 years ago. 15, there you go. See, 15 years ago. And, um, <laughs> and that's when I first met Maurice. So he was a writer. We were kind of doing our own thing on the site. Then I got a chance to spend a little time with him at the podcast conference. I think that was 2020, right before the pandemic, I believe, LA. I think that was when, when we were there. Mm -hmm. And so instead of reading the bio and all that, Maurice, how about you? First of all, welcome to the stage. We'll give you some round of applause here. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Oh, nice, nice, hey, uh, welcome, nice. Welcome to the show. Yeah, yeah. Why don't maybe the 30, 45 seconds just like introduce yourself, tell us who you are and what makes Maurice Cherry, Maurice Cherry. <laughs> right. Well, uh, thank you for the introduction. My name is Maurice Cherry and I am a longtime, I guess you could say, internet creator. I've been making things online since at least 1998, 1999. Uh, what I'm most well known for are the Black Weblog Awards, as well as my current podcast, Revision Path, which is the first podcast that's in the permanent archives of the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. Um, I've been a designer. I've been a writer. You know, I've done a lot of stuff online these past 20 plus years. So I've really grown up with the Internet. I've seen a lot uh, that has went on and have a lot of opinions and such as it relates to that. So uh, really, really glad to be here. Really glad to talk with both of you. Awesome. Awesome. Maybe the first question would be, let's go back. What was your inspiration behind starting your first podcast? And how have you seen podcasts evolve from over 12 or 15 years ago to now? Yeah. And 
in 2013 though, right? That was when you started it. Is that? Is uh, that well, that's that's when I started Revision Path, but that's not my first podcast. It's actually okay, my well, second podcast. What year was the first one? So the so the <laughs> listeners have some time frame on like yes. truly what a pioneer you are on the podcast. Like. Yeah, my my first podcast was back in 2005. Um, <laughs> I was just recording really terrible audio <laughs> audio files <laughs> using a ten dollar microphone that I got from uh, CVS. Just doing like, I, and I didn't even call them podcasts because they weren't called podcasts back then. There wasn't really a name for them. It was just called audio blogging. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for folks that know about podcasting, it's really sort of a portmanteau of iPod from Apple and broadcast. So that's where the podcast comes from. So I started before the pod, the iPod was a thing, uh, just like making little short audio files, maybe like 20, 30 minutes uh, for an old personal blog that I had that friends of mine could sort of listen to. So that was sort of the first blog. Uh, I called it a blogcast, but that was like the first podcast that I did back then. And I would really call that like the first wave of podcasting where a lot of what we know as podcasting really was brought by um, large media entities that already had the, the infrastructure, like a New York Times or NPR or something. They would basically just take their radio shows or broadcasts and then put them on the internet as MP3s because there was no community around podcasting, nor was there really a sort of syndication or directory method for that. Like it took a while even for iTunes to add podcasts. So that first wave of podcasting was really grassroots and communal. I like tapped into a local Atlanta, really a local Georgia community, but based here in Atlanta, a community called the Georgia Podcast Network. We had a couple of pod camps. I don't know if you all remember the the camp style of yeah. conferences from back in the day that were very much attendee generated. They probably still have those. I don't know, but uh, spoke at a few pod camps in Atlanta and I sort of started doing podcasting from there. I mean, I think the term podcast really became a thing around 2007, 2008 was when it started being called that. Um, and that was sort of that first wave of podcasting. The second wave of podcasting really came about, I think, uh, with the advent of Serial. So I started my show in 2013. I believe Serial started in maybe the same year, 2013, 2014, something like that. Uh, and because of the really journalistic style nature of what they were doing with the show, the high production value, as well as that one ad from MailChimp that people just sort of really caught on to because of that one woman's mispronunciation of the business. <laughs> um, that started to really kind of fuel the second wave of podcasting, I think, for a lot of people who said, oh, we can really tell stories with podcasting. You know, like we can really tap into this. And not only can we tap into this, we can really make a lot of money off of it. So that to me is sort of like the, the second wave of podcasting. The third wave, I think, is kind of what we're in now, which is really more technology-based and technology-driven. You have, of course, <laughs> big players like the big media networks, the New York Times, the NPRs, et cetera. Um, but you also have a lot of fairly large independent agencies that uh, sort of work between media, like they're between audio and television or audio and movies. So you have like a Wondery or a Slate or something like that. And then you still have your independent podcasters like myself that are kind of just still doing it fairly grassroots. Um, but a lot of technology is what's fueling podcasting now, whether it's dynamic ad insertion or measurements, um, as well as just the, I think, democratization of podcasting technology. 
like my first podcast, like I said, I recorded using a $10 microphone from CBS. Now I can very easily get a studio quality microphone delivered to my apartment in like four hours if I wanted to or less. And the software and the hardware is all easily available for me to create studio quality work like from my house. So uh, because of that democratization, a lot more people are getting into podcasting now. There's not that learning curve as it was before. So I'd say the the big changes in those waves have largely been about how technology has aided more content creation. Um, mm. Not to say that it was really gatekept in the first wave or the second wave, but as technology got better, as software got better, as hardware became more available, more and more people were able to get into it with a much lower learning curve. And so then that meant more and more people could create things just from scratch. I have a question. This just popped into my head. I mean, it's 2005, right? And you've got your $10 microphone and you're, you're, <laughs> you're talking into the microphone. I, I sort of hearken it back to like when I made recordings, you know, on the tape recorder and you like, mm -hmm. put, you have to press the two buttons and you record it and you're editing it in your own way. When, who were your contemporaries back then? Like who was doing what you were doing and are they still around because people come in and out right are they still around are you have you are you the I sole mean, survivor i mean back then you know i would i'm, I'm low to even say contemporaries because i think that means that we were at some point operating at the same level like i had a studio apartment that i was recording my my audio files from off a ten dollar microphone yeah. so i was really just doing it honestly at like a, a very hobbyist level not with any sort of indication of trying to gain an audience. I didn't care about downloads. It was more so for my friends who lived in other cities that I didn't see that often mm. to know like, oh, this is what, you know, Maurice is up to, that kind of thing. So, and also at the time, and this is prior to Twitter, the precursor to Twitter was an audio blogging site called Odeo. And so mm. I used that. A lot of other people used Odeo to kind of create these, I think they were, I think you could make like these little short audio posts that were like three minutes or less and share those between people. So you had the kind of infrastructure, at least for some sort of basic level of like audio sharing, but certainly not to the level of syndication that we see now. I mean, RSS existed back then and you could deliver via RSS, but the, the, the infrastructure to do all of that, like a directory with RSS and all that didn't really exist for a lot of people, nor were a lot of people really, I think, even cognizant that they could do that. So yeah. I don't I don't think I had contemporaries back then because I was just doing it for like me and my friends. Like I wasn't yeah. trying to compare what I was doing to other people. I wasn't worried about downloads or or discovery or or anything like that. I was just sort of doing it really on a lark. So I want to ask a follow-up question to that because we speak about contemporaries. You have been a guest on one of my favorite podcasts of all time and whom I think is one of the best interviewers and researchers that I've ever seen, Debbie Millman. How did you run across Debbie Millman? How do you kind of view her in your kind of graphic design world? Because she's like a legend in her own right. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, Debbie is Debbie is a legend. I wouldn't even say just in terms of podcasting. She's just a legend in design. I mean, <laughs> yes, in, in terms of women that have been doing it at the level at the skill, at the intensity that she's done it for decades is something that like, I can't, I can't touch that with a 10 foot pole. So podcasting aside, Debbie is, is mm -hmm. a prolific designer. Um, I mean, I, I, sir, I think I first encountered Debbie probably at like, I want to say it was at 
How Design Live in 2016 here in Atlanta was when I first saw her in person. Because certainly you hear, like when I started doing this design podcast in 2013, there were all the people that I heard about. I heard about Stephen Heller. I heard about Paula Scher. I heard about Debbie Millman. Never met them. I just heard about them because, of course, they're just in the atmosphere of design luminaries. Like, I just knew who they were, like constellations in the sky, right? So I never met them. Um, I, I first met her, yeah, it was 2016, How Design Live, because we were both speaking. And I met her at a speaker dinner, which they had. And it was so weird. They did the speaker dinner in a parking garage. But they had we had our speaker dinner. And I, that was when I first met her. And I don't think... Well, I'm not gonna say that. She didn't know who I was. I knew who she was. I was like, okay. <laughs> she was like, who is this large black man with an afro trying to talk to me? She didn't know who I was. Um, I think probably in terms of like when we knew each other as contemporaries, I would have to say, ah, uh, maybe it might have been around the time we did that interview. I mean, because uh, you know, okay. like I said, Debbie operates at such a, a cosmic level that I can only one day hope to reach as a podcaster and as a designer. Um, I just think she's done so much to, to bring the field of design to not just more designers, but to business people, to the average layperson. Like my mom knew about design matters and she is the most technophobic mm. person that I know. So like the fact that she was able to bring it to so many people on the radio, because her show is also syndicated. So yes. people know about her all over the world in, in that aspect. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Contemporary in that aspect, I don't know if her and I really match up. Like, she's light years to to where I am. But, yeah, I first met her in 2016, and I think we've, we've certainly kept in touch. I mean, she at the time, she was living in New York. Now she's in Los Angeles. Um, so we were just never, like, really in the same place. Like, I, I want to say I met her in 2018. I was in New York for an awards gala where I, I got an award from AIGA, uh, the Stephen Heller Prize for cultural commentary. And again, to kind of give you the sense of like, I'm meeting these types of designers I only heard about. Like, mm -hmm. I met Stephen Heller. I met Paula Scher. I met Seymour Schwartz. Like, I met all these people that I just heard about. And they're congratulating me. And I'm like, uh, yeah, that's that's great. That's wonderful. <laughs> that's awesome, though. I mean, how did that feel? That has to that has to feel spectacular. I mean, do you did you were you able to consume that moment, or did you have any imposter syndrome about it? Like, how did that feel? These icons that you, know, you adore, they're congratulating you. You know, it's interesting. Uh, at the time, let's see, this was 2018. I said, yeah, at the time, I certainly did like feel it because I mean this is in this is like a an awards gala like I got this at an awards gala like, I had to rent a I actually I bought a tux I had to buy a tux <laughs> for this thing because it's like a black tie affair like it was swanky like you know there's not really a lot of events as adults where you really get to dress up like a wedding you know a funeral unfortunately like there's not a lot of times when you really get to like put on the Ritz you yeah. know there's and always so, that one friend. There's always that one yeah. friend that has a black tie wedding, right? But so to like do this, yeah. like this yeah. event and then be recognized by like peers of mine, by people who I didn't even think they knew I existed, yeah. to know that they knew who I was and knew what my work was about was, I mean, really like to this day is something that is, is still kind of phenomenal to me because so much about my show has not changed since like the first episode. And now I'm closing in on 500 of them. 
500 episodes, what would you say? Uh, I love lists. So like if you were to share with us <laughs> four or five lessons you've learned while doing almost 500 podcast episode, so it's plural, what comes to mind? Um, That's a good question. You mean just about podcasting in general or like lessons I've learned like through my guests? Like everything. Life, podcasting, you can combine the two. Or we can do it two separate. We could say podcasting and then life. Which one would you (laughs) rather? I mean, Amadi likes lists. I got a pen and paper. (laughs) I would say, um, let's see, top five lessons. Certainly that you have to you have to find your why, like you have to find whatever your intrinsic source of motivation is going to be to do what it is that you do. Um, And it has to come from within. It can't be, I mean, you can have external reasons, like, you know, you want to do better for your family or something like that. You can have those reasons, but like when you have those bad days, you need to like, what's going to light your pilot light? Like what's going to really stoke you to do the thing that you want to do that you know that you're good at. So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing I would say is to just always be open, like be open to possibilities as they happen. Like you don't have to say yes to everything, but be open to things as they happen. Cause that's where like the great opportunities are, you know, everything's not necessarily going to fall within your lap. It might be something that comes completely out of left field. And that ends up being the thing that, you know, you, really kind of make it strike it big on or do very well on or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, third thing, I think certainly, and this kind of really applies to design is like, as, as soon as you can try to find a mentor, like whether that's a more established person in the industry, whether it's a peer, cause you can have peer mentors as well. Like if there's someone whose path and trajectory you want to emulate for your own personal success, um, try to find someone, if not that person themselves, like try to find someone that can help you to make those steps to get there. Um, fourth thing, and this is something that, that I feel I'm very passionate about, Stephen Heller's passionate about, Mike Montero's passionate about, is write. Write, write everything. Write as much as you can. You don't have to be, you don't have to write a book. You don't have to be a best-selling author or anything like that. But writing really helps you with like, honing your process, especially if you're a freelancer of any sort, it helps you with writing proposals, writing emails, writing copy, like just getting better at writing and putting your thoughts down either on paper or on the web somewhere. That is something that I think every designer, really every person, but definitely every designer should cultivate a a writing practice and get better at writing. Like just keep, excuse me, just keep doing it. Just keep writing. Um, And the fifth thing I would say is don't get hung up on tools. Um, I I just know from like working on the web for 20 plus years, the tools are going to change. The tools are going to get bought out by some company. They're going to get discontinued. Like don't be a tools based designer in that way where if something happens to that tool, then like you're, you're done for. Like I know last year there was the, the talk about, or there was the news that Adobe was acquiring Figma. And so many designers were just like, oh, just, I, I can't believe it. What am I going to, it's it's just a tool. Mm-hmm. It's just a tool. How do you think we felt when Adobe acquired Macromedia and they killed Fireworks, which was my favorite? Like, yeah. it's just a tool. You you get better at something else. You learn how to use it. You apply those skills to something else. Don't let 
the tool be the crutch that holds you back to creating something great. Man, I love that. I love that. Those are uh, those are important, but I think they're valuable for anybody, designer or not. I mean, because there's tools in all industries. You, we can get mentors when we're kids. We don't have to wait till we're old, old grown ups, right? I mean, I think those five are great. I want to, if it's okay with you, Monty, I want to go way back, Maurice. <laughs> okay. Because I think I read somewhere, and correct me if I've got bad intel, but did you play the trombone? Fact or fiction? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Do you still play the trombone? I don't still play, um, okay. but I, I played all through middle school, all through high school, all through my 20s. Um, I hung it up when I was 30. I was like, I just, because I was doing a lot of, like I was playing in background bands. I was a session musician. So like, it was fun, but like, it's not something you're going to get rich off of. Like you always yeah. kind of have to have the next gig or something lined up. And, you know, I was also like, especially by the time I was turning 30, I had just gotten my master's degree like, and I wasn't really sure about where my career was going because I had started my studio maybe like a year or two prior and that was starting to take off. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just had to make a decision on like, do I really want to focus more on music or focus more on like my studio? And so I focus on the studio. Still love music. Mm -hmm. Still a huge music fan. Especially love. Uh, it's funny. I was just as I was getting ready for this interview, I, I'm trying to do this thing where I make a playlist with at least one song a day for 2023. So and, cool. and I just read, and I say rediscovered because I'm always like finding music that I've listened to before, but it's like this guy, Bobby Sanabria has this Afro-Cuban like big band jazz group. And he, and there's, it's a song on his, on his album multiverse. And it's like all, it's like a medley of Duke Ellington tunes. And I was just Ooh. listening to that before. Like I was, you know, finishing up my other interview, getting ready for this one. Like, uh, imagine a rumba version of like Body and Soul or Satin Doll or something like that. So I'm always gonna be into music. I'm always gonna be super passionate about music. Um, I don't play anymore, uh, but it's one of those <laughs> things, especially the trombone, like you don't really forget it. It's just yeah, one, it's seven positions, one long instrument. You don't really forget it, but I, I haven't played in, in a long time. Well, I, I want to touch on that. Well, just just so you know, I am a trombone wannabe player. I someone okay. gift someone gifted me a trombone <laughs> as a going away gift 23 years when I moved from Ohio to San Diego. And I played it several times in my apartment in the 20s. And I went when in my 24, 25, right? And I almost got evicted because I played the trombone too loud. And I was awful. I was awful. I had no lessons. Somebody just <laughs> gave it to me. I love the sound of a trombone. I love horns. Number four on Stevie Wonder's Greatest Hits, Sir Duke. Like, I love a trombone or horns. Anyway, so when I saw that, I felt this kinship <laughs> to you immediately because I love uh, the sound of a horn. But I want, I want to go back to that, the music and writing, because I know music and writing is, is where your passion was at the beginning. And now you're a business owner and a, and a community builder and a designer. So for yourself, as you're pursuing your passions, like how do you make time in a day or a week for that creative space? Right. So whether it's listening to music that makes you creative or whether that mm -hmm. is, you know, reading a great book or how do you make time? What are some strategies that you could share with people? Cause I think creativity is what makes businesses so great but we all forget, and I think creativity is just as important as time management, right? But we all forget to make space for that. And I feel like with you, with your music and with your design and, and with writing, I feel like you've got all the secret sauce to 
make it happen. <laughs> I'm just curious, like, how do you make time for creativity or are there any hacks or strategies that you share? You can share with all of us. I mean, I think you just have to be really, really selfish with your time because it's yours. You have mm -hmm. to be extremely selfish with your time. That, And, and I, I say this from a place of privilege of like, I'm not married. I don't have any kids, you know? So like I have a lot of time to do things, yeah. but you do have to be really stingy with your creative time. Like for me, like these are things that I've, I'm sort of trying to do this year, but like, it's also stuff that I've done before. Like I will pick one day out of the week this, this year, it's going to be Sundays. I just turn the phone off. Mm. I turn it. Like I don't put, I don't put it on mute. I don't do not disturb power off and I'll turn it back on on Monday. So then that wow. means I have a whole day where I'm not having stuff pushed to me from notifications or whatever. And I can focus on anything else I want to do. I can cook, I can write, I can listen to music, et cetera. Um, but I also schedule a lot of blocks of time for things. Like if you could see my calendar, I schedule blocks for when I'm going to get certain tasks done. Yeah. Like if I know, like if I get a task that I got say at the beginning of the month and I have to finish it by the end, I'll look at the calendar and say, I'm going to take these four days from, you know, noon to four each day and just focus on that task. So then that way it's not like hanging over me that I have to do it. It's something on my calendar that I know this is when I have to do it. So I have to be really stingy with my time in that way and sort of blocking out that time. And I block out creative time too. Like if I Fridays for me after 5 PM, you can reach me on Monday, anything after Friday, it's a wrap. I'm not taking meetings. I'm not taking calls. Love that. Nothing. After 5 p.m., that's it. Um, even like when I've worked at companies, I've been very like diligent with them to say like I start work at this hour, I end work at this hour. So like if if you have a conversation with me, say I end work at four o'clock. If you start a conversation with me at 3:57, I'm cutting it off at four. You mm -hmm. can wait for the next day because I may have something else to do. Especially because I juggle when I'm able to record as well. So then I have to have blocks, you know, like like planned out for when I'm going to record the show or blocks for when I have to produce certain aspects of the show. So I have to put all of that into my calendar so I know that I'm going to like hit this, 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 this and this. And that's not to say that I'm always, you know, like 100 percent with it, you know, but I think for me, it helps to have those like those boundaries or, or those gates to say like, OK, in these two hours, this is what I need to focus on. Mm -hmm. And then I try not to think about it after that, unless it comes up on the calendar again. So like if I'm doing brand strategy for a client, I'll say, okay, I'll give myself three hours to work on it this day. That's it. Also, it's great for billing because then I can look at my calendar and say, oh, I worked on it for three hours. Like, yeah, it's, right. it's great. So I'm not overextending myself in that in that sort of aspect. But yeah, you really just have to be like very stingy with your time. I have booking links to say you can book 30 minutes with me either by phone or 30 minutes by zoom um i have a now page on my website where i'll say these are the things i'm working on right now if your request does not fall into these the answer is no and that's it and most people follow that most people but um <laughs> I, you have to be you have to be really kind of stingy with your time and sort of set that boundary like i try not to answer any work emails after at least 5 or 6 p.m. So I, I set things up, even like I have like the lights in my bedroom, like I'll even say, I'll even have it where at five o'clock, once the lights dim, laptops off, that's it. Like mm -hmm. I have, you have to set, or for me, it helps 
to like set those boundaries with myself to know like, okay, I only have 24 hours in a day. So I need to get these things done during this time period. And that's that because then otherwise what I'm up late at night trying to get something done, I'm not going to be at my best and like, mm-hmm. I'm not going to produce the best work then. So also blocking out those time frames sort of lets me conserve my energy for knowing this is when I need to really like go hard on this, or this is when I can maybe relax a little bit more. And, you know, I, I set it up. So I have rest breaks and work, you know, work periods. So after the work that I've got, you know, like, like I said, after 5 PM, that's, that's me time. Anything after that, you can reach me on Monday. Mm-hmm. I, love I love that. Setting those boundaries is so important. Teaching people how to treat you. So yes. important. And I love the, the no phone on Sundays. Just, you're just making space in your brain for all the other great stuff. That's those are great takeaways. Thanks for that. Yeah, and, and I mean, if there's someone that like really has to reach me, like I'm not completely cutting myself off. So like yeah. if you send me an email because you tried to reach me by phone and you couldn't, that's fine. But like, I let all the important people know, like Sundays, I'm not available. Mm-hmm. If you really want to reach me, like reach me on Saturday. If it's an emergency, email me or something like that, you know, and then I can check it. Dig it. So I wanted to follow up because you mentioned your website. One of my students' favorite activities this semester is when they created their own website to show them, to show people, this is what I'm looking for in terms of work, in terms of where, what compensation. And I actually got that idea because you shared yours on LinkedIn like <laughs> middle of the year. So I wanted to compliment you on that. And then also ask you for like this is a new year. You mentioned you have a goal of doing like one new song on a playlist per day. Mm-hmm. What other kind of goals or like goals do you have set up this year that you're trying to achieve? That's a good question. I could actually pull up my list and tell you. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> at the ready. At the ready. I've got I've got turn off my phone on Sundays. Um, I have like start the mornings with music, whether it's a playlist, if it's streaming radio, if it's a Twitch station, whatever it is, like start the day with music because I just I just function better going into the day listening to music. Um, I mentioned before about like any any like work emails after 5 or 6 p.m. will get answered the next day. Same thing with phone calls. If it's personal phone calls, I'll answer it after 5 p.m. I try not to answer personal calls during the day because that's when I've blocked out work stuff. Um, and then the newest, uh, sort of the newest thing is to try to read at least one book a month. I'm not going to go as far as to say a week because I don't have that much time. But like at least one a month, whether that's a physical book, an audio book something like read one book um a month so right now i'm working on uh the second edition of mike montero's book design is a job i'm like halfway through that right now those are good goals okay and the books like do you have the books set up like what you want to read and also since you tune in the twitch channels i gotta make sure you follow me on twitch because i stream a couple days too music too so i gotta let you know that (laughs) But book, like, well, we could talk about books because, like, what do you have on tap to read? And then maybe if you were going to recommend two or three books that you feel people should really, like, stop what they're doing now and read them, like, immediately, what books come to mind? It could be books you read years ago, last year, two years ago. What comes to mind for you? Okay. Uh, so after this book, I know I'm reading, um, it's a book by Cy Grundy. She wrote it about 
uh, Morehouse College. It's called Respectable. I went to Morehouse College, so I want to read that book after I finish this design as a job book. Um, books for other people. Um, I always recommend On Writing Well. I forget who the author is, but it's a, it's a book on writing called On Writing Well. Um, and if you're starting your writing practice or if you're trying to cultivate a writing practice, I think that's a really great book to read. Um, this is a shameless plug, but I'll also recommend Black Experience in Design. Uh, this was a book that I was a part of along with, I think, maybe six or seven dozen other Black designers uh, that was basically a like international, multi-generational look at the Black experience of design from several different levels. Like it's it's such a, a a pivotal and I think core book for designers of all stripes, particularly Black designers, but I think designers of all stripes can really learn something from it. Just a tremendous undertaking by the editors and all the contributors there. Um, other books, other books. Um, I still really, every now and then I will revisit Crush It by Gary Vaynerchuk. <laughs> I don't know what, I don't know what Gary V's rep is right now. I know he was a like web wonderkin back in the day with the wine and all that stuff. I don't know what he's like now. I know he he's has a Vayner big, yeah. all that stuff. Um, but I still read that book every now and then because it does still provide like a good spark of like inspiration for, for things that I can do. Um, trying to think of other, other books. I'll, I'll leave it at those three. I'll leave it at those three for now. I mean, I, I think, you know, certainly if there's books that you are, are passionate about, like I, I also consume a lot of audio books. So like I'm thinking of books that I've like physically read, but I consume a lot of audiobooks too, whether that's through Audible or through Libro.fm or, or through public library, et cetera. So there's a lot of books that I've just listened to that have been really great. Um, but these are mostly been like not like fiction books or nonfiction books and stuff, but not necessarily like self-improvement type of books. But yeah, I'd say the three that I mentioned, those are those are good ones to go with. Amani, you got you got your book question out early. <laughs> <laughs> Normally, Amani, Amani's like, we're 10 minutes left, and he's like itching to ask, like, oh, no, Amani didn't ask about yes. the book I mean, yet. Okay. the bookcase behind me. Lots of books there, so I'm like, I got them everywhere. So, yeah. I mean, you know, you don't know what you, you, don't, know what you don't know. I love it. <laughs> also, we got to shout out Susan Barnes and Vicki Meldrum, who are in the chat. Thank you all for tuning in and commenting. Please feel free to comment and ask questions if you're here with us live. Um, Hi, Susan. Hi, Vicki. <laughs> yeah. What you got for us, Manny? What's next? Well, I, you know, when I read your background, Maurice, it's, it's so, the thing that strikes me the most is that you are a community builder, whether it's a micro community or what type of community. But the thing that I also feel is that you genuinely want to lift people up, whether it's the next generation or whether it's underserved or underheard. And so I just wonder if you can just chat a little bit about the communities that you're building and why you're so passionate about that. Cause I'm really passionate about belonging to different communities and giving, you know, what you put in is what you get out. And, and it's more than just networking, right? It's a passion piece for all of us, but I'm just curious about if you want to share the different communities that you've either built or that you're a part of and why that's so important to you in either in your industry or just for you as an individual. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, just from a personal level, I, I feel it's really important to have these communities because especially 
at the time where we're at right now, the pandemic, I feel like has really in some capacity eroded people's sense of being together. Not necessarily like a sense of community, but like, I feel like people have kind of forgotten how to interact with each other yeah. in public spaces in some capacity that doesn't have to do with rage. Mm -hmm. um, and so community, I think, is, is important to me now because I still think that there are, you know, ties that bind us certainly that don't have to do with rage. But mm -hmm. um the past three years with this pandemic has really distanced a lot of people. And so if there's ways that I can help bring them together, particularly through causes that I'm passionate about, um, that's something that really just helps me feel good as a person, it makes me feel like I'm putting something positive out into the world, like I'm making a difference, making an impact. Uh, for Black designers specifically, it's been important to me because I'm a Black designer. Yeah. I mean, I came up, I mean, not even, you know, I didn't come up necessarily as a designer. Like I didn't go to design school. I went to a very conservative, all black, all male school and majored in math. Like I have, there's nothing in my background that is like design oriented in terms of education. Um, but I was always passionate about the web. I learned HTML when I was in, not in middle school, in high school. I learned HTML in high school taught myself Photoshop, things of that nature. So I've always been passionate about it, particularly at a time where these things were starting to explode. I mean, we're talking from like 95 to 2005, the way that personal computing grew, the way that technology grew, the software grew. Um, it was just such an exciting time to be a part of all of that. Uh, and what I saw certainly were a lot of my peers, people that looked like me, that were doing really great work and just were not getting any sort of recognition whatsoever from yeah. design media, from the design industry as a whole. Like you would look at conference lineups, you would look at magazines and such, and it's just, it was an Arctic tundra. Like we were nowhere to be found anywhere. Um, and so with my first project, the Black Weblog Awards, what I really wanted to do, uh, particularly for people who I knew that were blogging and such was give us a platform to celebrate ourselves. Mm -hmm. because it didn't exist at the time. And so growing that to a point where it's just showcasing like, you know, best media blog or best sports blog or whatever. Like, you know, these aren't like weirdly gendered categories like you would find at a general award show. It's like all about excellence in particular categories, regardless of who you are, how you identify, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, and so really doing that, I think, opened myself, opened me up to see, the larger community that existed that really was always there, but nobody ever spoke to them. Nobody ever mm -hmm. talked to them. Nobody ever shined a light on the work that they were doing. And so that became something that was the seed really for me to then later start Revision Path in 2013, which initially just started out as an online magazine. And then I converted it into a podcast um, after I did my first episode, like after I recorded my first episode, I was like, wait a minute, I could just make this a podcast and eventually <laughs> did that as the show, uh, as the platform grew, it grew into a show. Um, and with that, it was really all about showcasing the brilliant black designers. I knew that were out there doing great work because nobody else was talking to them. And I knew nobody else was talking to them because I would talk to other shows that were not talking to them mm -hmm. and were giving me all kinds of excuses as to why they weren't talking to those people. And I'm like, well, I can introduce you and they're not interested. And so it's like, well, if nobody else is going to do it, I guess I have to do it, which in, in a way kind of sounds like really selfish. Like, 
you know, well, what makes you think you're the, the one that has to do it? And anybody could have done it. Like, I don't think I'm uniquely special in that aspect. Um, if anything, I don't think I'm that's selfish. I don't think that's selfish at all. I think it's a calling. You were called to do that. And thank goodness you did. You know, I think the world needs that. Well, thank you. I mean, but I think, you know, there were certainly other people like in the design field that were maybe not doing a podcast, but they were celebrating and showcasing what black designers done. I think I was just really lucky in that what I did with the show took off like it did with the longevity that it had, um, you know, focusing on what sort of modern designers were doing, because I've seen design change over the 10 years from being more visual based to a lot of UX, UI, experiential, you know, AR, XR, et cetera. I've seen how design has grown as technology has grown. And so to be able to still talk to people and get their first person, like accurate, you know, depictions of what's happening in their lives at these times, because nobody else is talking to them. I mean, it's a, it's an interview podcast and that, you know, that form exists, but it's really something, you know, people, have compared the show to something like StoryCorps from NPR mm-hmm. because it's like you're archiving people doing this at these junctures that nobody else is really talking to. Like, if there's one thing that I definitely will take credit for, it's that a lot of other design outlets did not start talking to other Black designers until I did it. Mm-hmm. They, they did not. And I know they didn't because I've researched it. Yeah. So I can I can take credit for that. I'm not going to say that I... <laughs> I'm not going to say like all of them are my sons or anything like that, but I can take credit for that at least because I know that um, a lot of outlets just were not at all looking to talk to black designers. And it wasn't even out of like, you know, a lack of diversity. It was really out of racism, to be completely honest. But yeah. um, well, I, I feel really fortunate to be able to have helped steward that along so more of us could be recognized industry wide. What is one thing like from a designer's perspective or organizers, like what's one thing you want to tell organizers out there that whether they're creating an award show or whether they're opening up their opportunity for work for designers, like what's one thing that you want everybody to know about what you've learned so far about the design community? I would say two, I'll, I'll give two things. And, and one of the, one of these things is to like the organizers. And then one of these is to like designers themselves. For organizers, you have to talk to people. You have to talk to people. You have to talk to people outside of your bubble. You can get on Twitter. You can get on LinkedIn, whatever. You have to talk to other people who are not just in your circle. The main reason that I've been able to branch out, like I do, like most of the show is just a bunch of cold calls. Like even even now, 10 years in, I'm reaching out to people like, who are you? And not that I expect them to know me, but like a lot of what I do is just reaching out and talking to people. And a lot of people, a lot of companies even just do not do that. Mm-hmm. They're only talking to people within the narrow confines of where they happen to exist and then throwing their hands up in frustration when they can't find diversity in this small little niche that they've carved out. Like, mm-hmm. Well, of course, because you're not talking to other people in other places. So that's the first thing. Second thing I would say for designers, and this is, I mean, take this advice. It's the top of the year. Set a reminder on your calendar every month to go through all of your forward-facing social entities, Twitter, website, LinkedIn, et cetera, and make sure all of that information is correct. People are looking for you. 
in any place. They're looking for you everywhere. Everywhere that you might be online is where people are looking for you. <laughs> and you really want to make sure that all of that information is correct, that it lines up. I'm not saying that's, I'm not, I don't want to say makes sense, but like just make sure that it's all consistent. I know so many people that have missed out on opportunities because they had the wrong email address up or, well, I don't, I don't operate this thing anymore. Well then close it down. But like set a reminder on your calendar. Sorry. I'm like hitting my laptop. Set a reminder on your calendar. <laughs> chopping, chopping. Set so passionate. <laughs> just do it. <laughs> and check it every month. Just make sure it's all up to date. Like does your LinkedIn bio line up with what your website bio is? Is the email address that you can be contacted at? Is that accurate? Does your contact form work? Like, all of the just make sure it all works. You have no idea how many people I encounter where it's like they kind of, and I don't know if it's because they just purposely don't want to be found, which is a thing, you know. I, I look, I completely understand that, but mm-hmm. like, don't have these public facing entities and then nobody's able to really reach out and touch, like, talk to you if they want to present you with an opportunity or anything like that. Just make sure that those those outlets are working and correct. Uh, that's so simple. That's the second time today I heard that. Troy Hooper, who was another guest of ours a couple of weeks ago, he made this whole TikTok post about this today of like, your, your contact info is the most important. You could have the most beautiful content out there but your, or your web link doesn't work or your contact information is wrong. And and I, I don't think people that want to be found. I genuinely think people just forget mm-hmm. to update it. So I think putting a calendar appointment is really important. And it, it, as a buyer myself, the number of people that sell to me and give me their wrong response information, I'm like, are you crazy? <laughs> this is like yeah. sales 101, but it does happen. And it's a great reminder. I love that. Yeah. I want to circle back to one point you made what progress have you seen in terms of more visibility for black designers such as yourself based on nine, almost 10 years now of work with your podcast and being in the industry and speaking, what progress has been made? What more progress is there left to make? Um, I'd say certainly progress that has been made is that there are a lot more um, events, groups, and organizations that are catered towards or for black designers. Like when I started doing this in 2013, there was, and I guess they still exist in some capacity, the organization of black designers, but they hadn't, at least to my knowledge back then, hadn't really done a lot of events. Like I think their heyday might've been more in the early 2000s than when I started. Um, But now in 2022, I mean, there are people that have conferences over Zoom, conferences over hop in there's folks doing meetups there's slack teams there's discord servers like there's so many opportunities and ways to gather and bring in community around black designers that just did not exist even five years ago um there's so many so many things now like you could probably plot out something now at least once a month in terms of an event to go to a speaker to hear from um and like i said just because there are more black designers out there that are visible, like you're now seeing them in so many other places. And the benefit of seeing them in so many other places is that you have say black influencers or or black musicians, et cetera, that then use the work of those black designers. So now Mm -hmm. you've got this creative collaboration going on. Like it's, it's just so much bigger and more expansive now than it was. And I think technology has been 
a big reason for that. Like, especially once the pandemic started, um, I, I saw at least three or four black design events just pop up within the span of a year that just didn't exist before. Like mm. you could all get on zoom and have a call and charge people $20 a ticket to listen or something. But like it existed, like now something like this is a thing where people can put it together and the technology now facilitates it where you can create these events and, and have these organizations and things and you don't have to spend a dime. A lot of this stuff is free. So uh, for your low cost, I'll say that some some of the things are free, like Discord servers and things like that. But even with Discord, you can like put a put on events through Discord. You can have yeah, like movie cool. nights. You can do panel. Like it's a lot. It's a lot easier to get started with something if you can't find the community. It's a lot easier to build the community, um, or at least start to build it. But the communities now exist out there more than they did before. Um, I wish they worked together more. Hmm. I yeah. think there's a lot of silos, even yeah. in what looks to be a monolithic kind of thing. I, I wish there were a lot more collaboration between some of these um, entities, like working together. Like right now, I'm working with State of Black Design, and we have a talent collective together that we call the 10th Collective, which is a combination job board and talent collective where we pair well, we don't pair them, but we put together Black designers that are looking for work with companies that are looking to hire Black designers. So like that's something that we started into uh, sort of doing together last year and we're continuing now this year, particularly with the next State of Black Design event coming up in the fall this year. So I wish there was more collaboration in those aspects. Like even like I've done my show now for, you know, like I said, for 10 years and I've had, you know, other Black podcasters on the show and things like that. But like I've not had, I've not had that same sort of like, reciprocation mm. we'll say that mm -hmm. yeah. i've done a lot of reaching out and i've been left with sore arms i'll just put it that way <laughs> <laughs> that's a great way to say that <laughs> now we're to our 10 minute mark so now we flip the script allow you to ask both mandy and myself a question any question that's kind of something unique and fun we do here on the show so we'll turn the microphone well you're used to it but you know you can, <laughs> you can ask us questions and we All will right. answer them um amani i'll start with you i want to hear the story behind that vibe magazine cover in the background Okay, good question. So we're looking at right the Vibe magazine cover right there. That's Mariah yep. Carey. I'm a huge Mariah Carey fan. I think I got a couple other covers of her. This one is particularly notable because it was when she was talking about how she kind of went through a breakdown, and um, and so I just put it. I have a bunch of Vibe. Um, what is it? Covers. Uh, what's it called? Framed. This one is just because I'm a big Mariah fan and I support her. I got her book. I think it's back there too. And that's just really the simple story is that, you know, I like the cover. The article was good. I frame them. And yeah, that's it right there. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm trying to see what's in Mandy's bed. I'm not going to do that. Don't be a doc. Here, I'll duck. You can see it out. There you go. What? what? Here we go. There's more. There's more. There's more. <laughs> um... Let's see. Okay, I'll I'll ask Mandy. I saw a book when you ducked down. What's the story behind the book? Oh, sales, sales, sales. Yes, perfect segue. Yes, Maurice, that's my book. I wrote the book. Yeah, I'll send you a copy, Maurice. Maybe you can include it in your February reading. But it's 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 my book. It's sales tales, the hustle humor lessons from a life in sales and. 
I wrote it, gosh, I finished writing it in 2019. It came out October, 2021. And it's a journey through the actual sales process. And it's a whole bunch of funny stories about being a salesperson, a buyer, a sales coach over the years, but it goes through the life cycle of an actual sale. So it starts with research, networking, prospecting, the value of time, the value of value, um, uh, making a pitch, and then disaster selling I added at the end because COVID gave me that gift mm -hmm. and uh, how, to, how, how to run your business through a crisis. But yeah, that's my book. It came out in 2021. The audio came out in uh, April 2022. Okay. That was good. That was a good question. Yeah. I like <laughs> I, I should do this little elevator thing more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was well done, Maurice. I love it. I love it. What's up, Heather? I hope I pronounced your last name right. I think it's Heather Rach, R-A-I-C-H. So good to see you there. Um if we could go back to talk to Maurice, say it's like May 2003, you're just walking in Atlanta, just finished from Morehouse. It's a shame you did not go to Howard University, but we will not hold that against you. That's <laughs> Look, Howard can give me a scholarship, so that's on them. <laughs> <laughs> that is on them. Talk to them about that. We will talk to them. <laughs> and we're going to talk to Maurice and say, Maurice, if you were to give your younger self advice based on, you know, 20 years of additional experience, wisdom, and life lived, um, what advice would you give your younger self? Ooh. Oh, wow. I would tell my younger self to, um, that's a good question. Two things. One, uh, don't listen to there was a lot of prevailing knowledge around that time. I don't know if it's still the case now, but there was a time and I would say the like mid to late two thousands where there was this whole narrative of like the, the bachelor's degree is the new high school diploma. And so if you really want to get ahead, you're, you have to get a master's degree. Um, don't get me wrong. I learned a lot in my master's program. I have not been able to use a lick of it with <laughs> any work. Um, if I could mail it back and cancel that debt, I would <laughs> just wasn't, just wasn't, I mean, you know, wasn't that great for me. Cause some of the stuff even I learned, um, during getting my master's degree, like, you know, reading a balance sheet and a PL statement and all that stuff, I ended up learning when I ran my business. So like I, I got it anyway. So that'd be the first thing. Uh, the second thing is to just stop trying to compare what you're doing to other people. Um, <laughs> And I mean, this is not without going like too deep into my backstory, but like um, there's certainly been, I certainly had a history leading up to when I graduated from college of just kind of always being seen at being at a certain level, a certain level of aptitude, excellence, et cetera. And I spent so much time trying to compare myself to what other people were doing that I felt like I wasn't getting any fun out of any of the work that I did. And granted, the work that I did wasn't particularly fun. Like before I got my first design job, I, I sold tickets at the opera. I sold tickets at the symphony. I, I worked at auto trader helping car dealers sell cars for a while. Like I didn't have, you know, fun, great jobs. It was just like, Oh, you know, whatever you have to do to put a roof over your head, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I, I certainly wouldn't have tried to keep comparing what I was doing then to what, other people were doing to what I because I because it made me feel like I was failing in a mm. way when I think in reality what it was just doing was just showing me like this is what 
the real world is like, you know, I mean, I remember when I got my master, when I got my, my bachelor's degree, I was working at the symphony at the time and I had to go to work, I think the next day. And the only thing that they did to sort of celebrate me going back to work and getting my degree was that they took the calculator away from my kiosk. Cause they were like, well, you have a math degree, so you can just oh. add stuff in your head now. Which like but that wasn't the point. It was just like, <laughs> I didn't feel like I was getting any enjoyment out of any of the work that I was doing. I spent so much time trying to like compare what I was doing to what other people were doing. And like, not even in a way that I think really motivated me. It was just like pure spite. Um, mm -hmm. And I just don't think that it really served me in a way that I think could have gotten me to some level of success quicker, maybe, or at least to some level of contentment. Um, I wouldn't have spent so much time trying to like compare my journey to someone else's and just like run my own race. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Compete with yourself. That's powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Many, any final questions for Maurice? Maurice, and we put your LinkedIn there. We put that's the best way for people to reach you. Um, mm -hmm. If they're trying to maybe hire you or maybe talk to you about, uh, you know, potential design session, what's the best way? Is it through LinkedIn, your website? What, what would be the best way? Uh, LinkedIn is good. Uh, you can hit me up there. Um, I, also, my website is just my name, mauricecherry.com. You can use the contact form there. Uh, you can also contact me on Twitter. It's just Maurice Cherry, all one word. Um, you can reach me there. And also through Maurice Cherry, you'll see links to Revision Path and other projects and things that I've done. So my website is, I think, a really good catch-all that shows pretty much what I've done over my 20-plus year career. And, and uh, you can contact me there. And awesome. your podcast. I listened to your very first episode, 2013. Oh, no, the first episode. And then your most recent. But I listened to both. Uh, your podcast is great because I was like, well, how did it start? How's it going? You know, that kind of thing. The podcast is great. I mean, I think you just had the most recent woman was a um, a creative coach, right? Yeah, like, Sharon podcast, Super fascinating. So listen, if every, anybody's out there listening, the podcast, I'm not even a designer, but I am fast. It was a great Listen, I got so many little nuggets from that. So listen to the podcast for sure. And I, I just want to just personally say, like, you are a change maker and the world needs more of you. So just keep going because you're setting some great examples for those, the rest of us who we have to continue to give back. We have to lift up those, you know, in our sphere, in our industries, whatever that is. And so just keep going. I just, it's a really big honor to chat with you today. And I, we're really privileged to have your time. So thank you for making time for us. Thank you. Thank you both yeah. for having me. This was fun. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Round of applause there. Thank you very much, Maurice. Go do some applause there. All right. So thank you for tuning in to Adventures in Business. Don't forget to rate and review our podcast on the platform that you're currently listening it on. And don't forget to share it with your friends and anybody that might be as much of the business nerds as Amani and I are. See you next time for another captivating interview.